turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 18. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's right before the maps. It's the next to last book. And, and if you don't have a Bible, I really encourage you to get one. Um, it's more than a book. It's the bread of life. It's a primary way that Christ himself comes to us and gives himself to us. So we're going to be walking through Revelation chapter 18, starting in verse 1. Now, as you're finding that, I need to give you just a bit of background. When, when the book of Revelation was written, Christians were having a very difficult time. It was not easy to be a Christian. It was not safe to be a Christian. For one thing, Christian businessmen were being persecuted and systematically moved out of the marketplace because they refused to go to prostitutes. And at the time this was written, in this particular business culture, if you wouldn't spend business time with prostitutes, then you could not be in the trade associations. And if you could not be in the trade associations, you missed a lot of deals. It was tough. This was life or death for a businessman. So he had to make a decision. Secondly, Christians in general were being looked down upon in the society because the society thought if you're a Christian, you're not sophisticated. If you're a Christian, you're kind of backwoods. You're, you're kind of schismatic. You're, sometimes you were accused of being arrogant. At other times, you were accused of all sorts of things. And it was absolutely unpopular to be a Christian. Thirdly, the government was actually persecuting Christians. They were beating them and taking their property and putting them in prison and sending them to exile and even killing Christians. So when this letter is written, the people that these things that Luke just read, the people that first read that, that read that as the word of God directly written to them, as you and I need to learn how to read it, those people were in a very difficult situation. They were suffering. And this whole book, the book of Revelation, and this is really the key to understanding the book, the book was written to encourage Christians, to encourage them to not give in to the incredible temptation to cash it all in and walk away. This book of Revelation, it was written to say to them, Everything around you looks like you're on the losing team, but you're not. See, Christianity is really about your imagination. What do you imagine to be true? That you're on the winning team even though the whole might of the Roman Empire is gathered against you and it looks like it will never fall. See, the front of our worship guide, what, what is your imagination? Is it that verse, the Lord is your glory? Or is it Babylon? Is it that the systems of this world seem impervious to the judgment of God? Now, another thing we need to realize is that in the book of Revelation, Babylon as a city is used as a metaphor 
for all of the systems and all of the mechanism, mechanisms of this world that are working to pull you and to push you and to entice you away from the love of God. So Babylon in Revelation is a metaphor for all of the systems, all of the structures, all of the temptations that pull you and entice you away from having Christ right at the center of your life as the passionate, burning, blazing center of your life. Now, with the passage that we're looking at this morning, Revelation chapter 18, it, it, it's one of those passages that I think it's very helpful if you get an overview first if you kind of get a feel for the shape of the forest before you start looking at the individual trees. So I'm going to just briefly walk through the structure of the chapter, the shape of it. And you can look at Revelation 18 in four parts. Part 1 is verses 1 to 3. Part 2 is 4 to 8. Part 3 is starting in 9 going to 19. And then the final part is verse 4 going through to the end of the chapter, but actually it goes into chapter 19 and finishes around verse 8. Okay, so part 1 of Revelation 18, there is this angel and he's mocking Babylon. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. He's standing outside the burning city and mocking it. And he's mocking her and he's saying, it hasn't happened yet, but your your fate is sealed and you will be destroyed. Despite your enormous power, Despite your incredible prosperity and security, you are doomed. And it's so certain this angel is mocking Babylon, making fun of Babylon. Now, remember, in this book, Babylon stands for worldliness. All the systems of this world that drag us and pull us and entice us away from God. So here we have this angel making an announcement. Now, if... if, if you've read um, the Chronicles of Narnia or you've seen the movie, it's sort of like they're in winter, right? And here's this angel mocking the queen and saying, you think you're in control, but your kingdom is fallen. So he, that's what this angel is doing. He's mocking and he's saying, look, the magic is broken. The fairy godmother who's put her spell on the whole world is a sham. She's an imposter. This, the flashy image, the manipulative hype, the convincing display of power is not what it seems to be. Babylon has met her match. God will destroy his enemies. Now, being a Christian is about believing that or not. Do you believe in ultimate and final justice? Now, see, if you believe that, you can be meek. You don't have to take revenge, right? If you really believe that God will bring justice, it changes everything. If you really believe that, then when you're suffering, there's great joy. There's surety, there's peace, there's stability. Now, that's verses 1 to 3. In verses 4 to 8, the followers of Christ, get this, are exhorted to separate from Babylon before her judgment, or they will suffer with her. Now, part 3, verses 9 to 19, shows us how Babylon's friends, three basic friends, um, the kings, the businessmen, and the mariners, the ship magnates. It shows us how the friends of Babylon are going to react to her destruction. 
And finally, in part four, starting in verse 20, going through to the end of the chapter, actually going into chapter 19. Those who love God and who long for justice are exhorted to rejoice. To rejoice that those who have an idolatrous confidence in the security of this world will be punished. Now think about who this is being written to. It's being written to people who are being chewed up by the might of the Roman Empire. And they're being told rejoice, trust in God, have faith. Now that's the overview. Let's dive in, starting back in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 18. Now in verses 1, 2, and 3, we see that there is a part of this world that is evil. But it's evil in a specific way. It's evil because it tempts a person to stop loving God. To stop centering their life around Jesus Christ. Now think about how many... It's an evil. And it's in systems. And judged. And one day, all of that will be eliminated. For good, all the lies, all the worldly philosophies, all the false religions, all the stresses and pressures that are constantly pulling us away from a deep and intimate relationship with Christ, they will be taken out. Secondly, when, when the book of Revelation, when, when the city of Babylon is used to represent all of those forces, we learn something. That's very important. Look at verse 2. The angel calls out in a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Here we see that the spirit of Babylon, the system, the air, the atmosphere, it is evil. And not only is it evil... It is demonic. It's not just you're pressured to do this or that or the other. It's that there are really demons in this world. There really is a devil. There really are spiritual forces that you can't see and feel and taste and touch. And they are concerned. With the atmosphere of a city. With the structures of a government. With the ethos of a company. And they work in these ways. To lure us away from the life of blessing. And they are not innocent. And at the time this letter was written. Rome was overrun by these demons. So. When a city or a country embraces an anti-God philosophy, when it embraces these anti-God forces, it can become so bad that it is basically the embodiment of evil. 
And that's what happened here. Babylon, centuries before the letter had been written, had become that type of city as the capital of Babylonia, that type of country. And now Rome itself has become that. These are two examples where the Bible is pronouncing judgment on cities in history and saying they had gotten to this point. They had so embraced these forces that they had become... Rome at this point had become the spirit of Babylon. Now look again at verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon is judged and condemned. This world and all of its brokenness and all of the things in this world that look strong, that look safe, if I join that group, I can make it. That group is so stable. That group is the way forward. All of these things, all of this brokenness that pulls you away from God, it is living on borrowed time. Teenagers, at at your school, there are groups that if you just join them, it's the way forward. And they are living on borrowed time. It's sort of like a building that's been condemned. And there are notices all over the doors and the windows. But the wrecking ball hasn't showed up yet. It's coming. It's just a few miles down the road. It's slowly coming down the freeway. But sure enough, the wrecking ball is coming. And the building is going down. And in the same way, Babylon is condemned. And even though... To these Christians, the time it was written, even though Christians, even though Rome looks so powerful, even though she is destroying you, even though she is hurting you and making your life miserable, rest assured, the wrecking ball is coming and she is going down. Now, why is Babylon going to be destroyed? Well, look at verse 3. And we see that there are three reasons given for this soon-to-arrive wrecking ball. For the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. That's the first reason. The second reason, the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the third reason, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from power of her luxurious living. Now, in all three of these reasons, the basic point is that Babylon is a corrupting influence. She's corrupting the kings, she's corrupting the nations, and she's corrupting the merchants. Government, state, and business, all involved. Now, what's happening here is that Babylon, or Rome, has two primary exports. Immorality and economic injustice. Let's take just a minute here. Look at verse 3. The nations have, have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now at the time this was written, Rome was the big kid on the block. She was running the show. She'd been running the show for centuries. But in verse 3, John, who wrote this part, is telling us that despite all the good that Rome gave the world. And by the way, we are still enjoying many of the good things Rome produced. We really are. There was a lot of good that Rome gave the world. But 
In, despite all of that, she was a corrupting influence. She was immoral and she exported immorality. And everywhere her soldiers went and her businessmen went and her politicians went, they carried a corrupt and contagious immorality with them. And the countries they moved into caught the bug. Now in verse 3b, And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. Here we're told that the leaders of all these other nations, that they've been corrupted. They've jumped right into bed with Rome. Now, basically, here's how it worked. Rome was rich. And you could cozy up to Rome. If you could, you could be rich too. If you could work your way into the right meetings with the right politicians and the right businessmen who came from Rome, you too could be rich. And the people who were really benefiting from Rome's flourishing economy were the local rulers of all the other little nations. They were making lots of money. The local governors and the local councils. The whole system was milking the cow of Rome. And Rome was paying off enough people so that those at the very top were living incredibly luxurious lives. And you know who was getting nothing out of it? Nothing except more and more heartache, more and more poverty. It was the common person. Throw a few crumbs down the table and keep those at the head of the table where they are. Keep them in their lifestyle. Now look at verses 9 through 10. The kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. These political leaders of all these other countries who are milking the cow of Rome, they will not like it when Rome fails because their cash cow fails. Now look at the the last part of verse 3. Again, go back to it. The the third source of Rome's judgment by God are the merchants. Right? The merchants of the earth have grown rich from power, the power of her luxurious living. Rome had this insatiable appetite for luxury, for goods. And the merchants supplied that. I mean, that whole list of of all these amazing things, silver and jewels and pearls and fine linen. I mean, Rome wanted it, so if you could produce it out in your place. But look at verse 11. The merchants of the earth, they weep and they mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Just because a product is in demand and you can supply it doesn't mean you're secure. That's what, I mean, all of these guys, they had a sure ticket, right? I mean, this is a brutal expose of an economic system. They're weeping and wailing because no one buys their cargo anymore. And then it lists all this incredible cargo. So in verses 1 to 3, we're told that Rome or Babylon, this whole system of things in this world that corrupts us and turns our heart away, it has been judged by God And God is going to destroy it. Now look at verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. 
So Rome's going to be destroyed. And now this angel is saying something to the Christians. Come out of her, my people. Since, um, I lost my page there. Come out of her, lest you take part in her sins. Lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Now here the Christians are being addressed directly. And basically we're told, the building's going down. You better get out. But how? How do you actually do that? How do the Christians, this is not a highly mobile society. How do they get out of the burn? How do they get off the sinking ship? Now, that's the question you've got to be asking now. I mean, the expose we just did of Rome is not far off of what we're involved with. So you better be asking the question, how? How do I actually disentangle myself from a ship that will be destroyed? And if I'm on it, I too will be destroyed. We live in a culture that has embraced the same demons. We live in a culture that is filled with the same forces that tear us away from a deep and consistent love from God. So how do we escape? This is why I think it's so important to learn to read the Bible as a whole book. And we listen to the passage that Katrina read to us. So hold your finger there in Revelation 18 and go back to Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, Jeremiah 29 is a letter written. God is writing this letter through his prophet to his followers who live in the actual historic city of Babylon, the namesake of Revelation 18, the city that was so evil, it becomes a metaphor for evil incarnate. And in this chapter, look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's a group of followers of God that God has sent into the belly of the beast. Now, what does God tell his children to do in that city? Look at verse 5. This is really interesting. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city. Which city? Babylon. The city where I have sent you And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, this is really interesting, isn't it? I mean, when you read these two passages next to each other, it's like, is God schizophrenic? Does he change? Is he confused? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Is it just a human book? And the human authors overrode the mind of God and kind of corrupted the book? I mean, what's going on here? It's not just that God makes them move in the city, but here he says, settle down there, 
right? Do all the things that embed you into the warp and woof of a community. Houses, build houses. To build a house, you've got to get involved with other business people, don't you? Plant gardens, you've got to get involved with other people. You've got to know what works in this. I mean, they're, they're a thousand miles away from home. They've got to know how to plant in this place. How do you learn that? You ask other farmers. I mean, you're, you're wrapped up in this life. And not only that, they had to go beyond outward actions. They had to actually seek the peace of the city. The word peace there. We've talked about this a lot. It's shalom. It means the webbing together of God, humans, and creation in a life of flourishing. You need to work for a total life of flourishing in this place. So that the land flourishes and the people flourish in their relationship with each other and with the land and in their relationship with God. This full-fledged economic, cultural, and spiritual flourishing is something they were supposed to labor for and pray for. And not by becoming some city on a hill. You know, did you see M. Night Shyamalan's movie, The Village? This is not that image. This isn't go in there and build a little enclave and, and, and partition yourself off from everybody else. This is go into it and get involved in it. This is a big, bad city. This is Babylon. This is Berlin under Hitler. This is Amsterdam. This is New York City. Los Angeles. Now go back to Revelation 18. And look at verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins lest you share in her plagues. How do we hear what God is saying to us? See, the reason you need to read Jeremiah 29 in, in, in concert with Revelation 18 is if you don't, you will bootleg a lot of assumptions into what it means to come out or to go in. And you'll take them from your religious tradition. Because our religious traditions tend to be really good, some of us at coming out and some of us at going in. And you need to listen to these in concert with one another because you need to recognize that you don't read the Bible objectively. You read the Bible from your perspective. And you need to allow this to open up your perspective and to give you a new view. So which is it? What are we supposed to do? Withdraw from our culture or dive into our culture? Protest the culture or retreat from any engagement? Where do we go? Do we move into some Christian neighborhood? What do we do? Verse 4. If we, if we get it wrong, we're in trouble. The stakes couldn't be higher. Right? Because if we get it wrong, we'll take part in her sins. And if we take part in her sins... We will, despite our best intentions, share in her plagues. The stakes couldn't be higher. If we don't get out of our Babylon, we will meet the wrecking ball. Look at verse 6. The punishment is going to be terrible. God is going to pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds, mix a double portion for her in the cup she, in the cup she mixed. Go back to verse 5. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. So which is it? Well, again, we need another passage of Scripture. We need Jesus' prayer in John 17. 
We need verse 15. Where Jesus prays. I do not ask that you, talking to God the Father, take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Clearly, Scripture is not naive and it's not simplistic. It is cutting a fine line on this point. The balance of Scripture is pointing to the way forward. It's neither a naive withdrawal and ghetto mentality, nor is it a compromised engagement mentality. This is so important. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that every person needs two baptisms. One baptism out of this world and a second baptism back into the world. We need to be rescued from this world, but then sent back into it under the power of the Spirit, knowing how to live in it as sanctified people. Now, there was a letter written a long time ago, around 130 AD. So this was the first century after Christ. And in this letter, it's a famous letter, we we still have copies of it, There's a Christian writing to another Christian and he's trying to explain how Christians actually engage with Rome, with this world, with Babylon. And here's a quote. Christians reside in their respective countries, but only as aliens. They take part in everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their home and every home a foreign land. They find themselves in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. You see, 130 AD, there's this writer who's trying to capture this paradox. Now, it's a Christian thing to want Harrisonburg and the valley to succeed economically. That's Jeremiah 29. Work for its flourishing. Its social, spiritual, cultural flourishing. Our communities and our cities ought to be blessed because of us. Business ought to be positively impacted because of Christians. And law and art and education. And government, all of these things should be improved. Our school systems should be improved. Our businesses should be more productive. The land should be healed because of Christians. But when it comes to Babylon, and by that I mean the worldly systems, the culture that surrounds us and has control of our country, we must not buy into her lies. We must develop the ability to discern the difference between the evil structures and the hand of God. We've got to be able to see right through them. And it's hard. It's so difficult because we've lived in Babylon for so long. It's like the fish. What is water? A fish doesn't know. It's never been out of it. How do you know Babylon when you've always been in it? Look again at Revelation 18, verse 3. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And now over in verse 11. 
The merchants weep and they mourn. Verse 14, the fruit for which your soul longed is gone from you. All your delicacies and splendors are lost to you. Verse 15, the merchants of these wares who gain wealth from her will stand far off. Nobody wants to go near a building being hit by a wrecking ball. In fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, alas, alas, for the great city. It's gone down and it just goes on and on. All the shipmasters. This is a hard pill for us to swallow. And it's this. The bulk of this chapter is not about sexual immorality. It's about economic injustice. And that's hard for evangelicals in America to understand. You see, often when Christians quote the verses in the Bible about come out from her, be separate, be holy, and all of that kind of stuff. Conservative Christians in America almost always interpret those verses along the lines of their favorite set of Ten Commandments, their favorite ten transgressions, some issue of personal morality. Getting drunk or stealing or homosexuality, just pick whatever you're prejudiced against. Whatever it's easy for you to condemn. But the judgment of God on Babylon in Revelation 18 is primarily about systematic economic injustice. That's I mean, you just read it over and over. It's merchants and, and what they're selling and what's going on with it. And that's the point at the end of verse 3. Look, look at the end of verse 3. All the nations have drunk and at the end. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Will God judge us if we share in the sexual sins of our culture? Yes. Absolutely. It is wrong to have sex outside of a committed marriage between a husband and a wife. All other sexual behavior is wickedness and evil and sin and you will be judged for it. But notice, God will also judge you if you're pure as a Puritan with regard to your sexual ethic, but you imbibe the economic sins of your culture. Revelation 18 reminds us that we need to make sure our list of top ten measures up with God. It reminds us that God is not only concerned about personal morality, but structural exploitation. And you can be complicit with structural exploitation. And you will be judged for that, just like you will be judged for sexual impurity. The economic injustice that Rome was perpetrating is still around today. The rich are getting richer on the backs of the poor. The poor are still being taken advantage of. The rich and powerful use the labor of the poor to increase their wealth while the poor suffer and go without. Here's just a few statistics. According to one source, in 1970... 1970, the average CEO in the USA was paid 28 times more than the average worker. 28 times. 
That's the, that's the differential between the average worker's salary and the average CEO. In 1980, that difference was 54. The average CEO was paid 54 times the average worker. In 1990, the average CEO made 130 times the average worker. In 2000, the average CEO made 548 times the average worker. You know what that's called? Babylon. That's demonic. And you know what? You try to change it, you will get clobbered. And you can't change it because there is a demonic force in the structure that is so much bigger than you. And we can vote in a new government and they will be co-opted by that same demonic power. You see, the gap between the wealthiest and the poorest has increased dramatically over the past 30 years and we're arguing about homosexuality. And we should. We just need to add some other things to the list we argue about. Because sexual immorality is... And you know, if I was preaching to a different group of people, maybe I'd be majoring on the sexual immorality part. But let's be honest. Most of us in this room, we have no problem with the sexual ethic of the Bible. And we're too often impervious to the economic ethic of the Bible. Why? Why is it like this? Why are the rich getting richer or the poor? I mean, it's a very complex thing that's far above my abilities as an... I'm not an economist. I'm not a politician. I mean, these are... I'm not trying to say it's simple. I'm just trying to say it's real. And you can be complicit, whether you understand it or not. Why is it like this? But it, the reason it's like this is because it is always the system of the world to throw a few crumbs to the masses in order to keep the people at the top benefiting. It's always the system of this world. In fact, it had become so old by the time Rome came along that there was another nation that had cornered the name on it. Rome becomes Babylon. And this is, these are huge spans of historic sweep that we're looking at. And before Babylon, it was Greece. Well, before Rome, it was Greece. Before Greece, it was Babylon. That's the point of Revelation 18. This is a key component of the man, if you refer to, if you like Jack Black. School of Rock, have y'all seen that? The man. This is, this is a key way that Satan is ravaging our world. But remember eight, Revelation 18 verse 2. It is demonic. It is a result of demons and unclean spirits. It's not just that politician or that businessman. It's a businessman that's been co-opted by a spiritual force. And unless we learn how to ser- serve our culture without getting into bed with this worldly approach to money, then we will share in the judgment. Now look, this is just the first of four sermons I'm going to do on money. But we're starting here at this really big theology level. We're going to come down into far more practical and personal issues. But let me, let me just kind of make one practical example that we as a church who are deeply committed to our place need to have on our agenda. Over the past 40 years, it's become illegal to... Segregate populations based on race through policy and law. But another form of segregation has greatly increased in our country and it is legal. It's economic segregation. 
Typically, families choose to live in places based on their class and their status aspirations. And we reinforce that with zoning laws and city planning support. Now, look, we're deeply rooted in the city. And we need to lead our city and encourage our city and support movements in our city to resist public policies that contribute to economic and racial injustices. For example, separating prosperous neighborhoods from distressed neighborhoods is a bad thing to do because it leads to the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And it's a new thing in America. I mean, there was a time in America where you had big houses next to small houses. And now we've balkanized our people, right? We put the middle class suburb there, we put the upper class suburb there, and we put the poor there. Or we raised down the whole historic black housing district in Harrisonburg. It was in the 70s, you know about this? They just removed all of the houses. That's that big monstrosity. What is it called? Are you, what was it, Matt? Do you know what I'm talking about? The urban renewal, UR78 or something. It's the, anyway. We get rid of this eyesore, this ugly, blighted neighborhood. We do this through zoning codes and neighborhood regulations. And what I'm saying is we need to identify and suggest and perfect new policies Policies that reduce inequalities. We need a new model of neighborhoods. We need a model in which there are households and neighborhoods of diverse incomes. And it's up to us as Christians to recognize the magnitude of the problem and then identify and work for the most effective policies to reduce income disparities and economic segregation. Now look, this is not easy and it's going to take a hundred years. But there's this guy I know, he says, look, if you ever meet a church and they've got anything less than a hundred-year plan, leave. Find a different church. They're unrealistic. This is not easy and it's not quickly solved. And and if we try to solve it, we could face serious problems because we live in the midst of an evil culture that will resist us tooth and nail. But remember, this chapter reminds us our hope is in God. God. And even if we are in the midst of an evil culture that right now is winning, judgment has already been passed. The wrecking ball is on its way. And God will destroy every one of His enemies. And justice will be served on those who either directly or indirectly take advantage of the poor. In fact, that's how the chapter ends, verse 21. A mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters, none of these are going to be found there. God is going to judge. So maybe you are suffering from economic exploitation. Maybe like John, you've been persecuted. Someone has abused you and taken advantage of you. God knows. And God will settle the score. He will be your advocate. And justice will prevail. Please bow your heads and close your eyes.